the Incremental to Exponential podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast series from Capita, where we explore how big companies can innovate to survive and grow. I'm Justine Green and on each episode we'll be meeting a special guest to hear their story and thoughts on our theme. With us, as always, is Ishmael Amla, Capita's Chief Growth Officer and co-author with Vivek Wadwa of From Incremental to Exponential, How Large Companies Can See the Future and Rethink Innovation. Hello, Ishmael. Hey, Justine. And joining us from Washington, D.C., our special guest is president of McChrystal Group, also an author of acclaimed books about teams and leadership and a former Navy SEAL, Chris Fussell. Hello, Chris, and welcome. Thank you, and great to be here. Appreciate you having me on. Now, Chris, just to kick off, briefly explain what you do at McChrystal Group. That's a great question. Um, what I do and what we do, uh, I am the president of McChrystal Group, a, a consulting firm that's based in Washington, D.C. We have a, an office in London. The group is a management consulting firm with an origin story that comes out of the, uh, the special operations community. Um, I spent about 15 years in the U.S. military serving in the U.S. Navy SEAL teams. Our experiences there taught us how to take a traditional, top-down, very hierarchical structure and make it capable of operating in a much more complex, networked, information-age sort of uh, conflict zone. And so for the last 10 years, the McChrystal Group has been bringing that, uh, that type of thinking into industry. And at the core of it are... Our theory is how do you create a team-based mentality at large scale? So how do you take that 20-person unit mentality and scale it up to 20,000? And so that's, that's the work we've been doing for the last 10 years, and it's been incredibly rewarding. I bet. And looking back at your time as a Navy SEAL, what did you learn about making important team decisions during potentially dangerous missions? Well, the first thing I learned is that it's uh, the most essential variable you can ask for is trust. You have to develop a sense of deep trust inside of your team, but that is not something that just happens overnight. There's a saying in the in those parts of the military, you don't don't develop trust in a firefight, right? So when things are going badly, that's not the time to say, hey, we should really get to know each other, right? It's the actions you take day in, day out, weeks, months ahead of time to establish that sense of trust and understanding of one another. Well, let's get both your thoughts now on team performance in organizations. What's been the key learning for each of you over the last year? Chris, let's start with you. Well, this last year obviously has been uh, just crazy for everyone. One of the key ideas that we've seen, and we were talking about really early on in March of last year, talking with senior executives and advising them, don't underestimate the power of the hallway. And by that we meant, you know, there's the meeting um, which is always great to share information, but there's something magical that happens in the hallway afterwards. That's where personalities can come out in a different way than they can in the conference room. And so the meeting ends and people trickle out into the hallway and, and I can clarify, what did, what did she mean when she says, said that? You've worked for her before. Is that, was that a strong yes or a maybe? I couldn't really read her body language, right? And those are where that deeper level of trust can start to emerge because you get to understand the organizational nuance, who's really in control in a given situation, et cetera. And in a remote environment, as soon as the screen goes off, we are disconnected from one another. And so we've really been encouraging leaders, and this will be just as important as we transition back into some sort of hybrid structure post-COVID, to think about 
how are you replacing that? What are the other things that you're putting in place, other remote types of communication? How is your knowledge management shifting? How are you connecting individually with parts or individuals in your organization that don't have a hallway to bump into you anymore? Anishmo? Yeah, similar learnings, actually. Um, I would say that one of the big ones is there's now a new aspect of diversity, and that is around whether everybody has equal access to technology. And I think that becomes a leadership responsibility, whether you know everybody has enough bandwidth and tools and they are in a place where they can use all of that, which we didn't really think of in the past. But I think the other thing I learned certainly during this period is when everybody is remote, you really need to focus on the cadence so everybody knows when they're going to be talking to each other. There's active planning into making sure that we're going to talk with the right people about the right things it doesn't replace what Chris is talking about, i.e. the offline discussions. But the minimum foundation of at least having something in place around cadence, I think, becomes really important. And then on the third thing, I'd say from a very personal level, I found that, uh, you know, normally from a leadership perspective, we're talking about giving direction. We're talking about visioning and stuff like that. But what I found is that actually the longer COVID went on, giving energy become really important and giving a level of psychological safety and understanding what people were going through became really important as people went deep into this lockdown and remote working period. So it's been, uh, it's been a learning process for me, actually. I think we come away as leaders with different skills. And what are you hearing about how much teams will continue working remotely post-COVID, Chris? Right now, it's it varies organization to organization. Um, my personal sense would be there's going to be a, a bit of a hybrid that we go into for the next three years plus. Uh, I think there are certain things about how we did business in 2019 and prior that won't come back anytime soon. And I think there's going to be some good lessons from that, frankly. Uh, I'm sure many of us and many of your listeners would have you know, at the drop of a hat, flown from New York to London for a coffee as a first meet, meet and greet. And I think we've all gotten comfortable enough in the digital space to say that's not really necessary. It's not, it's not good for our personal health, for the environment, for a whole host of reasons. We can do those first three meetings like this and we can pull in others and now five or six of us have met. And when the timings are right, let's get together in, in person and go a bit, bit deeper. But I do think the organizations that will come out most successful nine months from now, maybe 12 to 15 months from now, are those that are actively coming up with their plan. Just like going into this problem, those that were lagging and waiting to see what would happen didn't fare so well. Those that now say, this will come to, a, to an end and we have to proactively start communicating about how we're going to handle our reentry are the ones that will end up you know, defining that curve and uh, finding a smoother reentry than others. Ishmael, do you agree? I do with the caveat that I think some organizations and some industries are making choices now around their real estate, around where their workforce is, around the implementation of technology, which will dictate how quickly they come back or whether they come back to the way that we used to work in the past. I think a couple of things for us, we are definitely down the road where we think it's going to be a hybrid working model. So we think most jobs can be done at home. We think that's better for most people, not everybody, for most people. 
But we actually think that there is value, and this is back to Chris's earlier point, there is value in making sure people can get together to be creative. But one of the learnings that we've got is that while the operating model might be hybrid, I don't think that meetings can be hybrid. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you've got five people around the table and five people remote, that's a very difficult environment to work in. And, and some of the thinking, certainly that I've read about, and I think we're probably going to implement as well, is if you're going to have meetings, everybody's going to have to use the technology or everybody's going to have to be in the room because otherwise people are advantaged and disadvantaged in how they work. I don't know, Chris, whether you've had any experience with that, but I think that's going to be a new set of operating approach that we're going to have to take on board. No, I think it's a great point. Um, some of the data that's coming out of the uh, education system, I think, speaks to that here in the U.S., where there have been hybrid schedules of, you know, six students in the class, 12 students remote. Not all of those have been positive experiments. Um, and so I do agree. It's a really interesting point. If businesses are going to develop a community to drive organizational change through remote working, what are the behaviors they need to keep? Well, I think one of the things that we've learned is on a positive upside, we've learned how to leverage a large video communication platform and have side chats going in. That's something we worked on at great length in the military. And so Ishmael and I could be talking, but I can also be chatting with uh, Jane to the side saying, hey, can you send me that report that he just referenced? And she can pull in three other people and now there's there's a lot of information and knowledge sharing going on on one, one side of the discussion and a real-time back and forth on another. I also think leaders have learned to hear different voices, right? Because there's no more center of the table, you know, sort of, I'm going to position myself and dominate this room. You just can't do that in a good way in a, in a remote collaborative environment. I think there's something quite profound around what working remotely gives you that working, uh, you know, the way we were working before didn't. And it was always available, but it didn't give us because we were too comfortable in working in the way that we were working. And one of the things that Chris refers to, which is getting access to an ecosystem away from everybody that, you know, we're working with at any given moment in time, is a huge knowledge of access and skills and everything else that we didn't have access to. I think that's going to be something that we should continue to keep as a behavior. I like the idea that if you are working in a remote uh, way, then transparency becomes even more important. I, everybody has to have access to the same data to be able to add value to that meeting. I think that transparency and inclusiveness is forced by the fact that we're all remote. And the final thing I would say is data and the value of data has become so important as we have started working in this way. And, and I think we've all forced ourselves to be trained in the last 12 months to work like that because we go into meetings and the only thing that's interesting is the data that we're looking at. Yeah, and, and just to, to build on that a bit, I think, again, one of the potentially positive knock-ons of this year, and many of us have felt this, whether you consciously or not, if, if we're in the same room together and Ishmael walks through his report and I can see like in his body language, he's really comfortable with that data set, but then he sort of kind of pivots a little bit and, okay, so maybe he's a little left. And we don't even talk about that. It's just in my subconscious that I kind of know where he thinks the thing's the strongest and, and not, even though maybe it's all red and yellow in the, in the report. When we're remote, you find yourself, because you don't see that, you don't have that sort of 
in the room back and forth body language, you find yourself clarifying. Ishmael, when you said that you're highly confident in this, you didn't say highly confident in the other. Can you articulate why it's, it seems to me like one might be better than the other? So you have these more nuanced discussions because you have to clarify it. Okay, thanks for the moment. Next, we'll look at the importance of leadership in building collaborative teams. Chris, what have been the main challenges leaders have faced in our remote working world recently? I think one of the challenges that has arisen to the level of leadership has been recognizing that you can't just snap your fingers and go into remote posture and it's going to be fair and equal across the board. There are a host of challenges from bandwidth and technology to living circumstances to childcare, etc. that one of the first reactions I saw when this happened, at least in, in the U.S., was senior leaders of big industry could easily settle into that. I mean, a, a good percentage of their re- work was remote anyway, whether it was from their office or from their home office. And they had all the supporting structure to go with it. And I think it took longer than many of us would have liked to have seen to recognize that doesn't mean it's like that for everyone in the in the workforce. Ishmael, how do you think leaders can develop teams to harness potential and achieve growth when people are more siloed? There's great examples from pre-COVID times, which I think are still relevant uh, even post-COVID. So I would look at uh, the work I've done at Amazon, Google and Apple. So if you take some examples in terms of team size, I think team size uh, and there's this great story about you know, if you've got a team from Amazon, if you've got a team which needs more than two pizzas to feed the team, your team is too big. I think that is even more relevant than ever in a remote working environment where, you know, you need to encourage collaboration and creativity for growth. Secondly, if you think about the KPIs or the OKRs that Google had, where they set objectives and still get still got paid the full bonus, even if they didn't meet all of their objectives meaning that the objectives were big goals. I think that is also sets something, something that's still relevant in order for people to go after the big moonshot and achieve things that teams couldn't think were possible. I like that. And the final thing I would say is if we think post-COVID and it's going to be a combination of remote working and working together, the working together bit becomes really important in terms of designing spaces which forces people to come together from different departments, from different functions. And again, I'd refer to the Apple headquarters, right, where people from finance are forced to cross teams from design to go for lunch so that people bump into each other. And, you know, there's a little bit of forcing the collaboration and different thinking, which I think, again, is really valuable to get to a team where teams can work better together. What about being able to assess weak points and recognising a potential threat before it's too late? Often a CEO can be the last to know because they don't have that hands-on day-to-day interaction. Chris? Yeah, one of the um, ideas that we've been immersed in for 20 years now, you know, time in the military and then a decade now in working in industry is, is how network effects inside of organizations, these sort of hidden networks behind the org chart, so to speak, really drive the effectiveness of an organization or undermine it in ways that it's hard for an executive to see, right? And so that was one of our core challenges back to the origin of this type of teaming thinking was you can have the most efficient top-down structure in the world, but you can't move information from 
a frontline person six layers up to the CEO as fast as a network can send that same information to thousands or tens of thousands or millions, right, in today's world, because they're unbound by who should know what first. And so one of the, again, potentially the positive knock-ons of this this last year will be leaders recognizing that I can leverage technology to pull more and more people into a discussion on a cadence that makes sense so people aren't overwhelmed. But there's no reason, and people now have seen it or felt it, that I as the CEO can't hold, I don't need an annual town hall. I can do a I can do a weekly where I invite as many people in the organization in to share information and listen from me and and get real-time feedback from the ground up. Let's get your opinions on what leaders need to do now to lead in a more virtual world. I think we are looking at a world where uh, what we've just been through will perhaps be more normal than not. And what I mean by that is disruption, whether disruption is driven by this sort of event or climate or technology, industries coming together, whatever it might be. And in that environment, I still believe that there is lots of opportunity and lots to be hopeful for. But I do think there is a different responsibility for leaders. And the responsibility for leaders is to not leave anyone behind. And what I mean by that is, as technology, for example, changes industries, lots of jobs will disappear and new jobs will be created. And I think it is the responsibility of private and public sector to develop skills and curriculums to make sure that as many people as possible can take advantage of the opportunities that are going to be created. Yeah, I think it's a that's an amazing uh, way to look at it that Ishmael just shared. The only thing I would offer in a different space, one other key takeaway would be, you know, much like boards of directors in the past have major events have shifted their thinking as to what they should be asking of their executive teams. You know, what's our IT security plan? What's our, in, you know, the, the clarity of our investment relations uh, responsibility um, and the accuracy of that information? I hope we come out of this because it has been such a major impact globally on individuals in the economy that there's a shift in how boards think when they talk to their executives around plans of resiliency. You've touched on this, then the pandemic has heightened the need for organisations to be able to react and adapt more quickly. Chris, how can they better prepare so they are more agile in the future? One school of thought, and we all see this all the time, is let's let's spend the next 12 months writing down all the lessons from this and put in place 175 pages of, of uh rules to make sure we never get caught like that again, which is can often be a fruitless exercise. You know, we, we've probably all been through those. Um, so I would encourage people not to do that, right? Don't write a thousand pages of standard procedures to prevent something that isn't going to happen like this again. What they do need to think about is what helped them, those that survived, what were the things that got them through it? And what were those changes, many of which probably happened through sort of crisis management and the urgency but turned out to be strong cornerstones of what saw them through the rest of the year. Finally, what type of teams and organisations will be the winners in five years from now? Ishmael, let's come to you first. Building on what Chris just said, because I think the winners will be purpose-driven. I think they will be tech-savvy. They will be agile and culture will be the differentiation for them. And so in all of the lessons learned that we've talked about and, you know, in the 175 page report, 
we would have if we were to do that, I think these would would be the key themes coming through. And those organisations, I think, have a great chance five years from now. And Chris, what type of teams and organisations do you think will be the winners? I think Ishmael hit on purpose-driven. I've, In my experience, both in the military and out, I've found that teams that have a a story that they believe in, that everyone from the senior leadership down to the junior intern, they might have hard days, hard weeks, hard projects, etc. But there's a story as to why that they are investing their life's energy with the people around them that sees them through those those hard times. And that and it's up to leaders. This year has given an easy an obvious story to tell, right? We have to pull through this together. We have to survive. Not everyone did, but good leaders knew, hey, I have to, this is the story we have to live into right now. I often tell people, if I have one lesson around uh, where you work, it's don't try to find the place that doesn't have problems. Find the place that's full of people you want to solve problems with, because we all have problems, right? And the best organizations have a story that pulls them all together. And so through good times and bad, they say, this is, these are the people I want to solve problems with because we all believe in the same story, the narrative as to why we're here. Chris, it's been great to have you with us and to hear your specialist insight. Thanks very much. Thanks to all of you. It's been a great discussion. Well, that's it for this podcast, but we'll return shortly with another special guest and you can subscribe to our series wherever you get your podcasts so you won't miss an episode. In the meantime, from me, Justine Green, Ishmael and Chris, it's goodbye. The Incremental to Exponential Podcast, back soon.